too often, I believe discussions of environmental action, especially in urban areas, overlook black health and generally environmental justice. So I had the opportunity in February as a part of the Black Health Matters Conference at Harvard University to talk about how we can refocus discussions on environmental action in our urban settings, especially. There is something that needs to be said about how environmental action in these areas tends to focus on tourist hotspots, our downtown commercial centers, but we overlook the outside neighborhoods, the less attractive ones that we don't like to put on the brochures about why you should come visit our city. Even though these communities, too often communities of color, represent the communities on the front lines of climate change. So in my panel, I wanted people to take away from the discussion just how we can make our urban settings more responsive right now to urban black health and the environment because climate change is also affecting these frontline communities, even if we seem to forget that they are impacted the most by it. My apologies in advance because this was recorded not by the best mics ever, but I hope that you do look past that and take something away from this. So I'll introduce our panelists. Um, we have on the far left, we have Dr. Christian Sporte, a scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, their research focuses on nuclear weapons risk and human health in the United States by employing environmental epidemiology, toxicology, and, uh, and he's using these methodologies to understand how communities are affected by nuclear weapons conflicts. We have Judith Bosser. Right. Judith Foster is a mom, social justice activist, and lover, lover of Mother Nature from Boston. Uh, she's the founder of Hero, H-E-R-O, Nature Center, a nonprofit organization located in the heart of the city that seeks to use nature to promote healing, empathy, redemption, and to create the old oasis or old environment in which we can all thrive. And in the middle, we have Stacey Jason. Stacey is the executive director of Pod Design, a small variety organization uh, environmental justice, um, working in environmental justice neighborhoods throughout the Boston area, and she's a founder of Harvard Nature RX. For the past, for the past 15 years, uh, her work has straddled landscape and environmental design, place-based education, and nature-based climate solutions by uh, developing and managing programs to center inclusion, belonging, community voice, and participatory design. So again, thank you guys all for being here. Um, so first question for the panel, what's the connection between urban black health and the environment? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, so black urban health and the environment. So when I define the environment, environment is everything you own, right? It's the built environment, right? It's your apartment, your school, it's the natural environment, the waters, the lakes, uh, trees, you know, um, environment is what surrounds you. Um, and so, of course, how your environment is treated directly affects your health, especially when we look at industrialization and we look at environmental chemicals and toxicants, right? A toxicant is something that's put into the environment that doesn't actually occur, but is now in that environment. So when we look at industrialized chemicals, we actually see now that there's 85,000 chemicals and counting every single day on the market, and we have actual human health research on them in less than 700 of those chemicals. 
and that's a problem, right? And so we have all of this funding and work we're trying to do to look at those, and we see the outcomes, right? So I live in Detroit. Uh, many Black women, if you have lived in Detroit for 30 plus years, you are prone to getting an extremely unique cancer that is extremely metastatic and harmful. And we are just now seeing and realizing that this is a unique cancer to Detroit Black women, specifically, who have lived there for 30 plus years. And we don't know why, right? When you look at a place like Detroit that's extremely industrialized, there are so many chemicals from all over. Um, you don't you can't actually quantify it, right? We call that the exposed zone. The exposed zone is everything in the environment that you're exposed to. And we can't quantify those things. We can't necessarily say how this one thing affects you versus all of these other things because they all build and they're all in your body. That's why most people are born with plastics already within their system. Right? Their bloodstream. You're born at birth, take a prick, and we know you already have chemicals within your body. And so, literally, from conception, you're poisoned in the name of money, right? Which, for the Black American, it's not new. We, our, our personality, our faith, our being, our everything, our children are commodified. And so, it's a further proliferation. And so, yeah, you can't think you can have healthful food if all of your food is sprayed with poison. So I don't think you can actually begin to talk about health in any context, especially Black urban health, without a sense of the environment. Can you just say the question one more time? Yes, so um, what is the connection between urban Black health and the natural environment? Such a big question, right? And for cloud design, uh, we work in the Boston area to work in environmental justice areas that are largely black and brown communities to connect them with landscape architects and designers to build out business spaces. And that means for us, we deeply believe that green space and the benefit of our connection with land isn't equitable. You're just saying that out loud again and again, it's hard to believe that that is the world that we live in. So that's the work that we have to do day in, day out to make sure that everyone understands that our green space and our blue space um, is there for everyone. The deep cultural relationship that we all have with land um, is to be uplifted and celebrated. And that's another piece of the design process is when we engage with the communities and are culturally responsive to what their connection is with land, it's an incredible opportunity to see this really breadth of how health is mind, body, and spirit that is, um, you know, in addition to very specific, as an example, like cancer-causing detriments, how does natural exposure benefit our mental well-being? How does it enhance our creativity? Um, how does it celebrate our um, oneness with God, whoever you define that. And we want to make sure that everyone is able to um, have that connection. There's just something from our experience, from our ancestors' experience, from our vision for our children that um, drive us. We want to be sure that like the privilege is expanded to everyone because of the incredible benefit of nature and to reciprocity. 
I would um, concur with that. And so um, let me say that, first of all, the disconnection with Black people in particular that live in the city with nature is not just a phenomenon, it's a reality. Uh, there's a study that you guys ought to look at. It's called the Nature Deficit Disorder. So glad that it came out because when I started my organization, there was really no information and studies being done in the United States about our disconnection to nature and how reconnecting with nature would aid us in our spiritual health, emotional health, and our physical health as well. And so I'm really, really glad to see that's going on. But um, in the, the context of environmental health and Black people, I do believe this was systematic, right? And policy driven. And so before we can, you know, start to dismantle um, the building blocks of that, we've got to address the policies that have brought us to this point um, where we're at. And so, you know, I don't know if any of you <clears throat> have folks that you know who are suffering from indescribable anxiety, indescribable uh, depression, indescribable <clears throat> malaise. And so I've gone to visit lots of places where this is apparently not just relegated to the United States. And this is again because of the disconnect with Mother Nature. And if you look at most cities, the way they're built, there's not many trees, right? And it goes also to the Caribbean where colonialism has turned the beautiful Caribbean islands into deserted places, right? And so the disconnect is, again, not just here. What do we do? Because I'm a solutions person. What do we do? Well, let's start by doing what we can do in the neighborhoods where we live. Find a park nearby. I know sometimes that's not easily accessible, but try your best until we find policy-based solutions to upgrade the tree planting. <clears throat> find tree czars so that the tree cutting um, decisions that are being made are made sensibly and not just because of money um, concerns, right? We know that homeowners, again, sometimes can't afford the insurance costs and other things that are um, associated with having huge oak trees, for instance, in your yard. So the easiest solution is to let's chop it down. But there are unintended consequences that are related to that. And so we've got to find a way to mitigate those consequences for said homeowners, and usually they're elders. So again, there are mechanisms, and I have some answers, that can um, you know, uh, restrict the uh, destruction of our trees and our greenery. Uh, one of the things that I also learned is working with the Green Party, the environmentalists, early 2000s. When it comes to our food, nothing is safe right you know, the veganism trend, I, I love it. You know, I come from a Rasta community in Jamaica, we eat lots of vegetables and, you know, we're very mindful of what we put in our bodies, not just what we put on our bodies. 
But again, if you're starting the base of what you're doing is, you know, toxic, then what you're producing is toxic as well. So the fruits and vegetables that we're eating are not beneficial, not nutrient rich. And there's no nourishing our bodies, minds, and our spirits going on. And, you know, before I turn it over, my mom is from, she's 87, she has to say, that if I'm upset or angry, do not cook her food. Yeah? Because again, there are things that we cannot quantify that we are the missing ingredient in everything that we do. So the foods that you prepare can either be medicine or toxicity or poisonous. Just from your mood, your spirit, that you pour into the preparation of your food. The glass of water that you drink can be medicine or poison, depending again, source and the intention that's behind the source. So there's a lot that goes into our beings, your spirit, your physical, and your emotional well-being. And I'll cut there for a moment. Thank you so much for talking about the solutions. And like one thing I appreciate about that is. So, but before we can talk about solutions, again, all of our panels are something about there's underlying factors, right? You have to worry about the source, the intention of how is it something comes to you before you, what you're eating is not what you're eating sometimes. And so that's a, kind of an important discussion for environmental health because often people don't know about these things. And people, you're surprised. And whenever you say that, um, there's toxins that we're supposed to not choose by, like all, every day, people are like, really? What? And it's like, why is that still surprised? So my question is, what are we overlooking and how we teach people about environmental health? And what is the major obstacle and how we get people to really understand environmental health disparities? I'll, I'll say, by, you know, we're, we're so, uh, especially in this country, so disconnected from each other, community, right? I start there before we can even get outside. Because once we're outside in this country, we're just you know, all over the place and all kinds of things go on. We don't know how to be with each other. We don't know how to be in community. And I've learned that, again, coming from the Caribbean, visiting Cuba, which is, again, I've not gone to lots of other countries around the world. My sister has. And when we compare, she's not been to Cuba, and I'm hoping she'll get to go. My uh, delegation has gone, my organization, we brought lots of folks down from Massachusetts and other places. And one of the things that I so admire about that space, there's this extreme poverty, but you don't see it because the love and the community overshadows all of that. Because if they have one bottle of water, they share it. Yes, and if it's even, if it's 15 people, then we'll get 15 sips. And so that's the epitome of community. Another thing that really, really, again, reminds me of where I come from, not current day Jamaica, but when I was growing up in the 60s, is that your child can go three miles by his or herself, three or three years old, and be ushered by every community member on his or her journey. We're here in the United States, can that happen? And there's not a worry of fear. So again, first of all, 
alone, we have to see each other. You know, stop the distinction with the color and the, you know, where did you come from? You know, who's your mother? Who's your father? What college did you graduate from? You know, how old are you? And, you know, your whole life story. No one needs to know that. We're all human beings. We're on this journey called life together. And we're all connected. Even people in Ghana, Jamaica, not here, but we're still connected by a thread that we can't see. So we start there talking to each other, having conversation, becoming community. And then I say, knowing that the environment is not just the grass, the trees, the water, the company that you keep, the stories that you tell yourself that no one else hears, that's nutrition. The clothes that you wear, and unfortunately I have no choice in buying things that are not healthy for my body. You know, I don't know if you have medical people in here, your skin, most exposed, organ, yeah? But yet, we don't think about the materials that make the chairs that we sit on all day in this country. The materials that make the car that you sit in to go to and fro three, four hours in commute. And so all of these things make up nutrition. So once we become, a, become more aware of the things that we put on our bodies, that's nutrition. The lotions that you use, if they're laden with chemicals, then you're slowly killing yourself. And then it affects your cognitive abilities so that you can't think straight, you can't love right, yeah, you can't even like right, never mind love, and you can't see properly. So all these things distort how we view each other and how we view ourselves. So I'll pass it on to my colleagues. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a good question. So what we're missing in environmental health, and um, I like the sense of community, absolutely. I think in my response, I'd like to highlight the history, right? So much of environmental health is lost because we don't have a history, which is very much an extension of colonialism, right? Divide and conquer. If you don't have intergenerational relationships, you don't have intergenerational knowledge. And so it's very intentional. And when you actually look at the history of industrialization, all parts of it are housed in colonialism, including capitalism, right? It's also housed in colonialism. You could not have capitalism without instability. Capitalism is literally saying, find something that no one else has and then market it, or if it's already there, make the market for it unstable, and then market that, that you've done, right? And so therefore, you cannot have a world that actually works and interacts as it is now because we don't know how to survive now without industrialization, when it is literally the killing of our own earth. So you look at the um, history, you see that first and foremost, why don't we have as many buffalo, right? That's because colonizers came through the plains and intentionally killed the buffalo because they said, well, these indigenous folks can live literally a year and an entire community and subside communities, you know, for communal eating um, off of a single buffalo. So if we can kill the buffalo, we kill the native man. That's why we don't have buffalo. Industrialization, you look at the start of it, uh, the railroads being built by Chinese immigrants, oftentimes very much in a, in a forced labor type of way, um, and paid for by poisoning the community with opium. Um, 
Um, you also look at the railroads, how are they maintained later? They're maintained by uh, prison labor, which we know is an extension of slavery, right? We said, we're gonna get rid of slavery unless in terms of a punishment, which the punishment is always there because when you are as far as possible down the children pole, it means you will always be the one to suffer the most. And so, I think this is so, so important because what we're missing is literally realizing that we have our own minds colonized and that we cannot uncolonize our own minds. We don't value the stories of the elders because she always tells the same story, she always tells the same story because there's meaning in it. There is history, tradition in it, and it's teaching you how to survive this whole world. And so we now get to a generation where we don't even realize that Black people are under attack. Right? Where people say, well, we had a black president, it's, like, it's over, you know, it doesn't matter. It's the same when you look at uh, integration, right? And so this, I, sit, I bring up all of these things because you must understand all of these things to understand how there is even a part missing in environmental health because environmental health as part of black culture all around the world, across the diaspora, in the continent, is community. Self is community, community is self. And that is how I was raised, right? I was raised in East Atlanta, um, a very international population as well. And so we start to look at these things. Um, we have to fill in that history, but we have to fill in that culture and that community as well, because we're completely losing all of the actual oratory knowledge and history that is important to our own survival. And now at this point, it's not that necessarily we're being separated by blatant laws, right? The systems are doing it for themselves. And that's why you also must understand the history because American slavery was the only self-proliferating slavery in all of the world. So American colonialism and the ideas of how America was started and built are completely different from anywhere else in the world. And it's actually trained, understood, and honed purely in our nation from the understandings of what the royals didn't get right over the pond, right? When Hitler started the Nazi movement, he studied in America. He read American literature. The internment camps that the Jews were put in were modeled from the internment camps America with the Chinese in. And so again, all of this information. So I studied nuclear weapons. My current job is in the global security program. Um, and we look at nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons in all of their history is racism. From the start of getting a nuclear weapon, uh, Albert Einstein, many scientists, right? But Albert Einstein specifically wrote an eight-page letter saying why we should not have nuclear weapons, why we should not allow this information to get published, and how it will harm us forever, and how we just should not let this happen. And then he gave multiple informed reasons. One sentence, one sentence, his entire letter said, why the United States shouldn't even attempt nuclear weapons is because we don't have proper uranium. Right? And in that sentence, he said, so to teach you about uranium, you mine uranium, it's a rock. And usually in all parts of the world, this rock contains about less than 20% of uranium. You're lucky to get 20, that's high. You're looking more so at one, two, five percent. When you look at the uranium in the Congo, the uranium comes out at 65, 70%. And so he said, we literally will be pouring out the earth and so, you know, causing complete instability on the actual tops of the earth, if we do this, and we can't do it anyway, because the only place that even has something that would be viable is the Congo. Now, the Congo was the Belgian Congo at the time. It was colonized. 
And so we said, cool, let's help out. Let's build a mine. We'll use slave labor and we'll work with the Belgians to make this happen. Now, why did that mean? Because the Belgians were continuously taking their cut. So we said, what we should do is get democracy in the Congo. That should happen, which obviously people were already fighting for a root level. Um, and I know this is a tangent and I apologize. <laughs>
definitely community, you know, really being hyper local in the way we think about these problems. Um, and really also what I hear from um, what you're saying too is making sure that we shine the light, that we uh, can lean into discomfort, that we can really be able to understand um, how to process conflict, that those become part of our conscious rather than something that we move away from. These are ways that to me, we can build a better education. I'm an educator at heart. Um, uh, that's my connection with Harvard is um, the School of Education. And I also see like, right, people are here because we're really full of change makers, right? There's something in us that we want to do to make a difference. And again, having that conscious around like what is possible, what are my skills, what are my gifts, what's my purpose, and what are my connections in community that I can start, whether it's organizing and building movement or um, being an incredible scientist and making sure that we understand like how systemic racism has caused incredible pollution in all of our states. Um, all of these pieces are incredibly important. So again, for me, I think that it begins with education, intergenerational wisdom, passing along, writing the stories. I mean, like that are really, you know, listening to people, um, just really, really understanding that like there's the, the conflict that exists, the issues exist because we didn't want to be in that very ugly, uneasy place for reconciliation and the suspension of solution, right? There's a suspension because we're not going to solve it. I just read today that often, I think the average between research and policy, full policy integration is 17 years. So that means that like there's a lot of work that has to be done to stay in a sustained effort towards solution and change. So like put your arsenal of like self-care, perseverance, uh, you know, willpower in your toolbox um, and surround yourself with good people that are doing amazing work um, towards common good. Can I just say uh, that last thing you really said about resilience and perseverance is so important to this work. A lot of our panelists we talk about, or they talk about uh, community. Um, decolonizing our minds. That's how I feel that it's really important to bring up the, the presence of deniers because if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of the people in our community, wherever you find that as, there are people who will overlook this. And even if they taught this, it'd be kind of naive of us to assume that they're going to be like, oh, yeah, it's totally something that we should do. So about that, that toolkit you just talked about, you know, optimism, radical optimism, whatever you call it. How do, we, how do we start to engage with deniers? You know, because that's an important part of this work. We can't overlook that. I was adding one more thought because it's kind of a through line between what I was thinking. The last question too. There's kind of this concept concept in um, regenerative thinking, whether it's regenerative agriculture, regenerative development. Um, 
And I learned this actually, I was working at Soulfire Farm in New York, if you don't know that amazing um, black goat farm, um, you know, check it out. Before the pandemic, she was offering amazing um, workshops, et cetera. But in any case, I love this mindset that um, I just learned from her and it's eco over ego, right? Like, like imagine, imagine if, um, that was a mindset and it could help us build a relationship with deniers um, so that it wasn't an ego battle, but we were really finding kind of the roots of one another's um, purpose and decision making. Just pass it along. So for me, some people, I mean, use the term deniers, yeah, but we must also recognize that these chemicals of which we speak, airborne and others, affects our psyche, affects all of our cognitive abilities. And so with that said, we're going to have that residual uh, manifestations of not being able to understand completely the way others do, how these things affect us um, collectively and even individually, right? Even if you have the asthma, in your family for generations, you know, yeah, or uh, some other uh, debilitating um, dis-ease. And so I believe, again, the education, the understanding, and dare I say compassion to wait until those folks catch up to where you are, right, in the process. And again, we don't all read at the same level. We don't all have the same level of understanding. And we'll never do, and this is why it's incumbent upon the folks who are up there, so to speak, come down here. Not every once in a while. Come down here and meet people where they're at, at their comfortability. Instead of using acronyms, use some lay terms, yeah? Instead of assuming, ask some questions. What would you like? Oftentimes, you have these, you know, so-called professionals come into our neighborhoods and tell us what we need, tell us what we want. No, no, find the time have a come first of all, if the person is hungry, anxiety-ridden, disease-ridden, can't hear you, suffering, can't hear you, can't see you. So the conversation is going not. So again, first we have to address the human needs before we can have a conversation about nature deficit disorder proliferation of nuclear and the like, community. None of that will resonate if we're not in our right minds. We can't hear you, can't see you, can't res cannot. So you're, it's a brick wall, you're banging your head against a brick wall. And so for me, again, no one size fits all. So, ask Chinese, 
are you? What do you like? What makes you happy? What makes you vulnerable? Yeah, so let's start there. Some of the solutions, start a garden. Before they take away all the seeds, start growing something. And the reason why I recommend that, the feeling and the nurturing and the nourishment that you're going to get from the very process of co-creating something outside of yourself, nurturing it, watching it grow, knowing that you were intricate in this living thing being viable, coming to pass. And even if it doesn't work the first time, you keep trying again because that's life. We get the gift of waking up every day to try again. And so a garden, maybe it's a tomato, maybe it's a dill, maybe it's not even a fruit, maybe it's just a thing, right? A rock. Rocks are people. Go hug a tree. I collect rocks. I have them. They're all unique. No two are alike. They're like people. Go hug a tree. Trees have their own uh, ability. They have the different temperatures. They have just, just so much research. Again, become friends with Mother Nature. Even if it's just to look out your window every once in a while at the tree down the street, open it up, get some fresh air. And again, even that little thing that you do will have an effect on your psyche. Because again, if you're not in your right mind, none of the things that we're suggesting is going to make any difference, right? And so we've got to get our minds, our spirit, and our emotions and our bodies in sync. Feed all of it so that you acquire homeostasis. And then you can start to think about the things that are outside of you. That's just my suggestion. Um, and I'll be sure because absolutely to both of you is so good. Um, I will say, in, in, so I am a scientist, I focus on research, right? Um, and why I wanted to be at the Union of Concerned Scientists is because, you know, we're a large nonprofit and we can, we can get this information out to people who aren't just hiding in a textbook, right? Who aren't just in a journal, you know, who don't have access to a journal. Um, and so in part of my work now, we're really looking at what are these alternative methods you can look at, right? So I have a project that includes podcast episodes, that includes making explainers or blog posts or, you know, talking to colleges and universities, things like this, and then also TikTok. And I'm like, well, we need to have a TikTok, right? We have a company in Twitter, we, uh, we have an Instagram, but we need a TikTok. That is where people go for information. Period. So it's an entire, you know, majority of people we're missing with our information. And why is that, right? And 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 I want to say so much of um, the truth and the progression going forward and the uh, why wait when we're all when people are dying, right? Those who are comfortable with the weight of environmental policy are those who are dying actively each day uh, from the unjust policies we have, right? And so we have to also keep in mind the fear aspect when we look at deniers. 
right? Because none of us want to sit here and think about the carpet, the plastics, the clothes we have on, what we ate, what we're going to breathe when we go outside, the ceiling, the air that's being pumped through are all poisoned. All of these things, I can look around the room and name chemicals that are harming us actively. And that's our current environment we're all sharing, right? And so telling that to someone who already doesn't want to believe this is happening because it's more convenient. And it's also the story sold by industry, capitalism, politics as well. You know, you have to always consider the mental aspect is the point is how do you do that? How do you do that? And how do you do that without them causing harm? Oh yeah. Because the fear is there, fear is legitimate. Yeah. And that's where the denial comes from in many, many ways. And so how do you actually educate and engage the denier without further harming and disenfranchising them? I feel is really a big question too that I can't answer, sadly. <laughs> I think it's something that we're all gonna have to answer. Um, and part of that, like addressing that fear is being equipped with the news. So I actually wanna ask you guys about because this word can get very draining very annoying, and you have to have a lot of passion, like you said, to do this for any period of time. And I'm young, right? You guys are obviously way more experienced than me, and I can already see how this is something that can burn you out fast. So I want to ask all the panelists, um, you know, there's a lot of bad news out there with environmental racism, um, environmental health. What's the next step to decolonizing environmental action? That's one part. It's kind of a loaded question, so here we uh, so, what's the next step to decolonizing environmental health action? And what's some good news we can all use to keep in our school box to change the narrative about urban black health and the environment? Well, I'll, I'll go. So, currently, the good news is that the um, Biden administration uh, issued an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding for the uh, access to nature, right? So that uh, we'll build out more trees and clean up our riverways, waterways, and, and a whole host of initiatives that are out there. Um, fortunately, here in Massachusetts, we have us, uh, the new uh, governor, uh, Laura Healy. She's environmentally conscious, has some great ideas on the table. Um, in Boston, we have Mayor Michelle Wu, who's also environmentally conscious. And uh, Hero Nurturing Center, my organization, I'm hoping to get some more supporters uh, in this room and outside of this room to support uh, nature becoming prescriptive, right? Where you can go to your doctor and get a prescription to be exposed to some, you know, greenery, someplace where you don't have access to it. And that it's covered by your insurance, right? Because we, we don't all have folks in Jamaica where can go, you know, lay by the palm tree, sip on coconut water, you know, eat some mango and walk barefoot for three months. We don't have all have access to that. So we need to have a mechanism set in place. Canada has done it. Japan has done it since 1982, where the country knows that these things are beneficial for a healthy citizen. So that's one, the nature being prescribed by our physicians should be a thing. Um, yeah, so there's lots of good news on the front. Um, here in Massachusetts, our waters aren't as, you know, degraded as they once was and were. The Charles River was just horrible at one point in time. And so we've come a long way, not to depress, right? And there's hope because 
I did a speak on Boston Common, I think it was 2021, if I'm not mistaken, at the climate strike. And when I looked out to the sea of attendance, it was all young people mostly, but some elders as well. It was a mix, I call it the United Nations of the environmental movement that day. I was so surprised and inspired. So again, it's not just the young people who are charged to do this because you did not create the mess. And so we are begging and pleading for your assistance. And before I go any further, I do believe that's one of the things that we can do to harness the expertise and the, the, the strength of the youth. Explain to them, rather than saying, oh, you should be cleaning our mess, first acknowledge that the boomer generation, the boomers don't like me saying this, but it's true nonetheless, you know, so I'm not gonna apologize. The boomers created the situation by and large, right? And so acknowledge that you created the situation and that you're asking diligently and uh, humbly for the young people to help us get out the mess that, again, the boomers created. And I think, so again, a lot of the young people that I talk to, the hypocrisy is just really, really disturbing for them. So this is why I say, if you're speaking to your elders, you know, the boomer generation, have them know that it's just, you know, not uh, really, uh, you know, getting, you can't get honey. Let me just gather my thoughts. So to, to, in order to get the young folks to acknowledge where we are and join in the solution, you first have to acknowledge where the mess came from and apologize for what you've done, is what I was saying. In a formal way, apologize for that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very hopeful um, because the light is shining. You know, it's the first step is to shine the light and uh, understand how to find solution. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, super exciting to be in this area, quite honestly, I live all over the country and Massachusetts, California are really starting some very important national benchmark policies, um, whether it's you know, the Green New Deal in Boston and how that's rolling out in the Boston public schools, which is incredible, um, being able to build out green spaces, being able to make sure that all of the students have access to nature, also acknowledging um, uh, Biden administration's no child left inside um, movement. And, you know, I also think that it's really important to meet people where they are. So when you're with a child, respecting them to not be placing fear, but to be continually thinking about like the awe that can be inspired um, of the environment first. Right? Like, what's the awe? What's the fascination? How do we build connection at our youngest children's age? And like, how do we continue to like work with people at their different developmental ages? When I think about teenagers, right, adolescents, um, and the building of youth activism, that's incredibly exciting. Actually, that's how I met. Um, is because I was listening to his climate stories and we're building a youth advisory board at Cog Design. And it's like, 
I need to know people like you that are super inspired and know Boston and can really help us because um, I'm just really like guiding efforts and wanting to make sure that all voices are heard in the development of our design. But I do think that the, the work, again, is kind of this ecosystem model of like working where you are closest, like closest to home, and then kind of like national policy, international policy, right? Like, you know, I look all around the world to see like, how are they starting to like solve these issues? Why does it not exist in this country, that country, and definitely clearly systemic structural racism is a large factor in the United States. And there are other solutions that we can start to see from international aspect. Um, so again, across the ecosystem, but it's hopeful. I, I do think that we're moving in the right direction. And unfortunately, right, like I'm a geologist major actually, so I have rocks too. So I, uh, I see things that when I was in school, people didn't even understand climate change, right? Like, and I'm not that old, but even in the like 90s when, you know, I'm starting to be like an environmental researcher and it was like fringe, right? That was fringe. I actually was just talking to someone, I, I do volunteer work on climate resilience at the Conservation Law Foundation. And she was saying to me, oh, so you've been working on this since before it was like uh, trendy. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I'm so old. <laughs> um, but in any case, I, I'm just, I, I also, in addition to all you said, gratitude. I just feel like incredible gratitude to be here, to be thinking, to be around like-minded people. And when I have those opportunities to listen deeply, um, right, and meet people where they are, uh, I see that as the movement to change. Um, so first question, next step to decolonizing, I think very much goes back to that first question, right? If you get the chance, go home, listen to the stories. Mm -hmm. Listen to the stories from the family, from family, friends, from elders, friends, anyone. Listen to the stories, share the stories. What you know, make sure that what's in your head, education-wise, you're a very you know, top university. Make sure what's in your head is in the heads of your community. That's the next step, first step, right? Um, and that's that's not something we're gonna end up doing in the institutional side. Like, right, an institution can't force that conversation. It starts with you, right? Um, and so I think that's part of it. One thing um, that my job is currently working on as well is looking at pit production, so plutonium pits. Um, are actually, so a pit is just like a little silver ball, and inside it contains plutonium, um, and the way that, you know, like we have our uh, nuclear weapons work now, it's actually a much more efficient and larger um, blast than any uh, nuclear weapon that we've actually seen uh, uh, dropped on someone, right? And so you actually look at the history, Again, the United States is the only country to ever drop a nuclear weapon, and Japan the only ever country to receive it. And you must ask yourself, what about Hirohito was different from Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini? Why Japan? I'll leave that at that. But talking about the good news, right, um, there's plenty of good news to, uh, to, 
to, to share, right? So there's uh, actual, a lot of government funding, like you said, now there's more trendies coming out. Uh, so you look at Justice 40, which is a very large grant that the Biden administration put forward. It's $40 million to go directly to building infrastructure and knowledge on environmental justice as a way to end environmental racism. And uh, that just came out when he started as president. He's also pushing for um, a lot of different things um, which is good, right? It's, it's better than Trump, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and, uh, and so we're talking about these plutonium pits. So the reaction is larger because now we have a multi-reaction. So we use plutonium now, um, we use hydrogen and radium plutonium. Um, so you can have uh, multiple nuclear reactions, essentially, and it's more efficient because it's uh, fission and fusion as well. Um, and so, Right now, we had stopped using them for a very long time. During the Trump administration, they said we should make more. And so we're actually at an opportunity, at least in my position, that's really exciting to be able to actually say, no, no, we need to push back. You know, if you're going to do this, you need to do the research and you need to have actual rigorous research that looks at this. Uh, it's also the first time we've seen nuclear weapons and nuclear policy where anyone is actually looking at the human component to decide nuclear weapon decisions. The first time, usually it's political. Um, you know, well, if we have this, maybe someone else won't. Which, if, if I don't understand that logic, if one child has a knife, do you think if every child in the room knives? How I? So we all come to school with a knife, and, and that makes us safe. That makes no sense. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so while there is this fear that we might start you know, making nuclear weapons in mass again, there is still time to push back and to say no, right? Definitely check out uh, ucsusa.org, uh, which isn't a shameless plug, but it actually has a lot of research. We're a large organization. We would the ucsusa.org. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, and so we have a lot of resources on there. We look at clean transportation, we look at climate and energy, we look at food and the environment, and we look at nuclear weapons. That's what we started looking at. And you can see on there, we have these things that we talk about. What can you do? What politicians can you contact? We produce science purely for uh, people who are engaged and interested, right? So yes, other scientists, but also community scientists. Right, the general public, um, and then and another extremely exciting thing that we've been living in, you know, for some of you your entire life, but for many of us still new, is we are in an era of information. There's information everywhere. There's misinformation, disinformation, but there is information everywhere. And as you go and as you learn, you know, you'll realize you'll be able to discern between misinformation and disinformation. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. But there's so many things we can do. And, and I think the future is bright. We have young, look at all these people in the room. Y'all are the future, okay? Seriously. And lastly, I would like to follow up on uh, what uh, the doctor just said. For me, this is for your inside and to pass it on to your friends, neighbors, sisters, brothers, cousins. You've got to encourage yourself. Yeah? That is one of the most important things that I can leave with you for your spiritual, emotional, and physical health. Everything starts from within you, not outside of you. And that's a fallacy. 
And so you can coordinate that voice, that's, that small, that still small voice that's inside of you. Mind what that says, mind what you're telling yourself and turn that conversation into positivity and reality. And you'll see some magnificent changes in the rest of you. Because where the inside goes, the rest of you go. Thank you guys so much. Like three people probably came in and were like, talking about, we gotta go, we gotta go. But I appreciate you guys so much anyway, going over time, answering questions. I wish I could give you guys a chance to ask questions, but I don't have time. I have to get you guys. But thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm also really good. If you have the ability or chance to read African Americans Against the Bomb, it'll teach you all of the history of how we have been engaged from the dawn of the concept of the nuclear weapon in dismantling and not making it happen. So I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, yeah, again, sorry that the audio wasn't so great, but that's what happens sometimes when you just have to have a, a recording of a panel and you, you do it in a large room with a lot of echo. But glad that you stayed to listen to this. I'm really appreciative of that fact. Um, it didn't throw you off too much, I hope. Again, thank you guys for listening. Episode 13 is done. And the next episode will probably be my interview of Shanice Forte, one of the panelists, uh, following this panel discussion that was recorded. I had to just learn more because I actually couldn't ask a lot of the questions that I wanted to just because of time constraints at the conference. So I was determined to interview some of my panelists and figure out just more about their work and how we can do better because... Like I said in the beginning, you know, environmental action is not just about our tourist destinations. It's about these urban areas, too, that we tend to overlook. Um, and that means communities of color and black health is right in there. So uh, thank you guys for listening again. Um, yeah, stay tuned. So, you know, when the next episode's coming out, we're going to talk a lot about Shanice Forte's work in toxicology and also nuclear waste and radiation. And I know she talked about it in this panel, but there's a lot more there. If you want to know when the next episode is coming out, though, uh, follow me on Instagram at OBA underscore O-S-A-S-E and at climate underscore doctor underscore pod on Instagram as well. Um, there you can find the link tree and all the links that you might ever need to see are on those Instagram pages. So, all right, I'm about to be out. Peace and God bless.